Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh Law Firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I object, Your Honor. Your Honor, I object. You would! Listen, we don't know you. We don't know who you are. We don't know what you do. So please do not rely on anything we say as legal advice. I'm Noah Fardo, presiding. My wingman, attorney Bill Rigel. And all we're trying to do is bring a little irreverence. That's just what this stubby company needs. A little irreverence. Well, let's start the insanity. Call the first witness. Hey, good morning, Bill. Noah. Today on I Strenuously Object. Doctors on cocaine. You ready? <laughs> I mean, I am prepared to strenuously object early and often on this one. Well, I strenuously object that we ignore the substance abuse problem in the medical field, which I'm going to prove to you today exists. And why this is important today is we're going to actually offer advice for patients on how they can protect themselves because we've seen our own clients too many times with these doctors, not ask the right questions, not do the right things. So without just, further, just so we're clear, when you say we've seen our clients many times, you are not taking the position that we have many times uh, been helping clients whose doctors were on cocaine. Now, just for the record, this cocaine or mota, as we like to call it, is something that we have no experience in. You know something about cocaine? We know nothing about cocaine. Yeah. I believe that's the position we take, whether that's true or false. Well, it's absolutely true. And what happened to me, and I, I just want to share with you real quick, is in 1986, I was 14 years old. And the Len Bias, remember Len Bias, the number one draft pick of the Boston Celtics? I, I know of Len Bias. I'm just barely too young to actually remember Len Bias. Yeah. Mike Q. Len Bias news announcement of his death. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. Len Bias, the Maryland University basketball star, on his way to becoming a world champion Boston Celtic, died of an apparent heart attack today at Leland Memorial Hospital in Prince George's County. Doctors say he died of a heart attack, cardiopulmonary arrest, but what that means or what caused that heart attack, we don't know. Well, Len Bias, I mean, over OD'd on coke. And I guess in the late 70s and early 80s, everybody was using cocaine. That's what I hear. But when I was 14 years old, my generation, I got lucky, was this unique generation that I think was scared shitless of it. And we missed it somehow. I don't know if it's back now or not, but that scared the living hell out of me. And thank God, because Billy, you know me, that would been, have been something very bad for me to do. I think I probably would have done like I do everything else in life all the way. That seems right. Um, all right. Santino, what do you think? Uh, there is a lot of money in that white powder pop. Uh, we don't get into it. Somebody else will. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, doctors working long hours and having to work overnight, I'm not sure that cocaine isn't a performance enhancer in this context. Well, it's not just cocaine, and we're going to get into it a little bit about it. You know, the main problem that I've been reading about is prescription drugs, you know, all kinds of medications that they're taking. Um, but first, I want to prove to you that there is a problem. Um, the third leading cause of death 
in the United States of America right now. Number one is cancer. Number two is heart disease. And I might get an error and correction on that, that they're switched, but it's cancer, heart disease. And the third leading cause of death in, in the United States of America is medical errors. Do you believe that? It is an unfathomably large number. Well, the study from John Hopkins two years ago said somewhere between 250,000 to 450,000 people die every year from medical errors. And let's remember, we're undercounting that number, right? I mean, these are the places where the medical profession is essentially self-reporting that the medical error um, was at least a contributing factor, if not the predominant factor in someone's death. Um, there are any number of times when uh, an act of, of negligence for medical error is going to go undetected and there will be some other cause of death listed and nobody knows uh, or has access to know that that it was it was a, an act of medical negligence of medical malpractice that that actually was the precipitating cause of a patient's death so the number as high as the reported number is the real number has to be even higher well yeah if there's hundreds of thousands of deaths reported the reality is that the doctors the funeral directors the coroners they don't want to list medical error on the death certificate it may have been a medical error that led to something else they only list the actual cause of death and that's why it's underreported so okay you convinced me that medical malpractice is a problem um in our medical system and and, and probably others um you have not convinced me that substance abuse is all right well let's do two things first number one i'm pleased again to have the godfather back my my good old friend ron myers i've known him for many years um and ronnie not only brings everyday common sense and, and a high level of intelligence to these, to these episodes, but he also has some pretty unique experience where he's acted as a patient advocate and has really saved loved ones harm from mistakes that doctors made. So it's, it's going to be a pretty interesting insight. I'm always happy to have the Godfather. Noah, just for my recollection, the last, the last time Ron appeared, didn't, didn't we say we were going to stop calling him the Godfather? Uh, yes. Ronnie does not like being called the Godfather, but he is. And we'll, and you'll see why Ronnie, are you with us this morning? I am. Good morning, folks. All right. We're going to bring you in on this dialogue because Bill and I have been talking recently and, you know, he's not convinced that doctors are snorting up cocaine before they go in the operating room. And I'm going to try to make a position today that yeah, there's some up doctors out there. This all the store, the idea for this show started with Bill and I back in 2006, where we're watching a video of a doctor in a courtroom. And throughout the entire video of the, of the doctor's testimony, he's going. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable. There is an uncomfortable awkwardness where you knew in that courtroom, everybody was thinking, is this guy on cocaine? And me, me, me and Bill go out to the break. We didn't look at each other while it was happening. We go out to the break and we look at each other. And we both pretty much at the same time. Was he on cocaine? What is going on? So that was our first idea that questioned whether a credentialed board certified physician could be putting white powder up his nose. Bill, you recall that? <laughs> very, very distinctly. Um, um, I, I've never been more sure in my life that someone was on cocaine. Oh, and, and that's including people who like who I know were on cocaine because they told me. Okay, so now we agree hundreds of thousands of people are getting killed. You now agree with me that we have firsthand knowledge that we think it's more likely than not that this doctor snorting cocaine. Ronnie, what's your initial take? You think doctors are using cocaine? Yeah, without a doubt. 
but I am shocked by the earlier stat. Can you repeat that? Yeah, it's your well, intro. John Hopkins said between and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll make sure I get the numbers correct. Um, it's somewhere between two hundred and fifty thousand to four hundred and forty thousand people died um, in a single year as a result of medical malpractice errors. Okay. Wow. So maybe this doctor we saw bill was just an isolated incident, but then a few years after that, I hear about this jerk that I knew at school. I don't want to cause any names or anything like that, but I hear that he's a surgeon practicing in some hospital and not naming names is a sound decision from a liability perspective. (laughs) And I always say that gossip is the devil's tongue. So I don't necessarily want to gossip per se, Gossip is the devil's telephone. Best to just hang up. But, you know, the conversation that I overheard was how this surgeon was, oh my goodness, he's using cocaine all the time. It helps him focus. He thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. So now I got not only visual confirmation from my career, now I got verbal confirmation. And, and it's rumors, hearsay. Maybe they didn't like him. I don't know. I think they were friends with him. And I think the story is true. But I got a couple instances and I got hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, So I think there's a problem. And I started to research it. Do you think there's a problem in the healthcare field with substance abuse? It depends how you're going to define problem. I mean, assuredly, given the number of medical professionals there are, and this includes doctors and this includes nurses, among all of those people, of course, some of them are going to have drug addiction. Of course, some of them are going to have problems. And there will be a non-zero number of times that it adversely affects their job performance. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, I don't I would expect that, you know, the amount of substance abuse in the medical field, because these are supposed to be people who are educated about the medical consequences of these sorts of decisions, um, that there would be less predominance of, um, you know, drug abuse or or addiction problems among professional medical providers than among the population at large. Yeah. So you start looking at the American addiction centers and you start looking at some of the public stats that are out there about do do doctors have a substance abuse? They say that one in 10 every day of Americans at one point or another in their life will have a substance abuse problem. Now, you agree with me that the healthcare industry is understaffed right now? Uh, A thousand percent. Ronnie, you agree as well. Absolutely. So we have an understaffed medical field. Would you agree with me that those are stressful professions? Agree. Sure, of course. Okay. The Center, American Addiction Center, stated that somewhere uh, their estimation is that because of these stress factors, because of the understaffed um, medical facilities, that they believe it's somewhere between the 13 to 15% range of substance abuse in the medical field. Okay, hold on. This came from something called the American Addiction Centers, you said? There are studies online. This is the American Addiction Centers. It's a recognized addiction agency. It's um, that estimates in their studies 13 to 15% um, experience substance abuse during their career. Okay, and and does that same entity give us an estimate for what they think the 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 occurrence rate is in the rest of the population? Yep, it's 1 in 10. Okay, so that's they the think, same place that gave you one in 10. Well, I don't know if it's the same You're not mixing not. and matching I'm, on us here. I may be, but the point is it's not, un, it's not unrealistic 
to believe that a understaffed, stressful profession like the medical field is experiencing a higher percentage than the main society. I strenuously object. Okay, Ronnie, what are you drawing that conclusion based upon the scant evidence thus far provided? I I know that you can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Excuse me, is this sarcasm 101? No, it's Lamaze class from Men Named Arthur. Oh, okay, sorry. I'm kidding. And far be it from me to question the research methodologies of whatever the addiction center is. Um, But this isn't quite enough to get us over the goal line here as far as convincing me that there's a real, a a real and distinct problem in the medical field here. Yeah. Ronnie, any insight? You know, just on the face of it as a layman looking at the drug problem in America, uh, I would say, I don't know why um, anyone in the medical profession would be outside the norm in terms of drug use. And in fact, I would argue, or I would tend to think that they may be more susceptible to drug use. I would think right. the same. I now, would think if we're the speaking same. specifically of cocaine, eh, maybe not because Coke's not something that's readily accessible. But if you're talking about drugs, they have, they can get their hands on a lot of drugs. And I know a lot of doctors that use a lot of drugs. But drugs is very business. Um, you know, you're, 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 the Godfather stuck getting Godfather, just so we're clear here. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, never the, end. The, the other thing where this comes from a little bit, Bill, and why I want to talk about it, because I think there is things, there are, there are specific things that patients can do to protect themselves, to protect their loved ones. There's a patient safety uh, action item list that, that they can do. But here's, the, here's where this, some of this comes from from me is, you know, we have these cases against doctors that we've tried over the years. And anytime you go into a medical malpractice case, both parties are supposed to walk into the courtroom and it's supposed to be an even playing field. You know, uh, we're going to start from ground zero and inevitably, and tell me if you feel differently, Bill, but I always feel like the plaintiff, the injured person starts a touchdown or two behind because this doctor is in a white coat and doctors are carrying people that give their lives for the health and safety of other people. How can you be suing this doctor? Don't you feel like you're down two touchdowns when you walk into a courtroom on a med mal case? So here is a place where I will definitely agree with you. I I don't know about, I don't think there are any good or reliable studies telling me exactly how much drug or, or other addiction issues there are in the medical profession versus the population at large. I'm just not convinced by what's out there. I am convinced of two things. One of those is the thing that that Ron was just talking about as far as the nature of the industry, long hours, overnight shifts, a lot of stress, understaffing, and ready access to drugs. If If you want to do that, there are structural elements in place that make it plausible or make it easier for there to be a problem. And look, if, if doctors are no more uh, prone to addiction than anyone else in the population, that's still not good enough, right? If there are structural things that are, that are pushing doctors and medical providers into substance abuse, those happen to be the same structural things that are causing there to be this giant amount of medical malpractice. Um, the doctors are too busy. The nurses are too busy. We're way overstaffed or understaffed. Um, and it's a super stressful position. Well, yeah, I mean, it's super stressful. And, you know, Ronnie, if you're on a juror, do you look at a doctor? Do you give him that benefit of the doubt naturally? Because I think most people do. I, I think the general population would. 
Um, however, just based on my experience uh, and, and knowing who I know and, and uh, my network, I, I don't. <laughs> like the, the doctor is an expert to me, yes, in, in, in medicine for sure. But in general life, they make really bad mistakes and they could make mistakes at work also. Yeah, I think of the old Depeche Mode. People are people, so why should it be? I don't know if you remember that from the early 80s. Yeah, so I don't hold them in any higher regard than I would, you know, anyone else. You know, the, well, the, the garbage man. The garbage man knows more about collecting garbage than the doctor. The doctor more is, knows more about, you know, practicing medicine than I want to give full man. credit to the godfather here um, because I don't think from talking to jurors in the past that his position is the majority position. Um, I mean, one, in a lot of the cases when we're talking about medicine, it is still a problem that, that people are naturally deferential to doctors. Uh, but, but I actually think that there are a couple, uh, a couple positions in society, and doctors are one of them and police officers are another of them, that when they're testifying as witnesses, generally based upon their profession and their position, jurors are just more inclined to believe them. And again, this was the second thing that I would agree with, irrespective of the precise proportions of substance abuse, it is important to remember these doctors are people too. They make mistakes like everyone else does. When they make mistakes, the consequences are, are literally deadly, um, but they're still just human beings. And one of the things that makes these mistakes more problematic, um, and, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like this is the disclaimer of, uh, of, all, of all aspersions that one might cast. I'm not saying this about all doctors. In addition to the fact that jurors have a tendency to believe doctors, um, there are certainly any number of doctors who themselves are in denial about the fact that doctors too can make mistakes. They have a God complex. I'm a God. You're a God. I'm a God. I'm not the God. And look, they save lives, right? Doctors save lives and that's great. And doctors also make mistakes. And based on the numbers we're hearing, those mistakes are killing hundreds of thousands of people every year. And I'm not here to blame doctors who have substance abuse problems. I'm here to say, look, there's hospitals and insurance and all of these other systems that are in place. And those systems need to be better at not putting our medical professionals in that sort of position. Um, you know, that, that really is where the energies are drawn, Get, getting the people who need help, help. Uh, putting in structures in place to prevent the mistakes instead of what exists now, which are not structures to prevent the mistakes, but are structures to kind of cover up and, and obfuscate those mistakes so that lawyers can't find them. Uh, because, because right now, the, a lot of the charting and record-keeping procedures followed by the medical profession uh, are, are basically designed to avoid that kind of accountability, specifically accountability in the legal system for those mistakes. Um, and that that's kind of doubling the harm to the patients, right? The, the patient in question is already injured by this act of medical neglect. And then the patient is doubly injured because when the patient gets their chart, uh, the chart is to put it mildly putting a positive spin on the, on the care that was provided and looking for any and all excuses to blame the patient in question for what happened. 
Because- my goal here, my goal here is to empower the patients, right? To help the patients. You know, we talk about being down and giving the doctors the benefit of the doubt. Nobody would think, what juror would think, oh, this doctor may have snorted cocaine um, prior to testifying. Nobody would even think that. Um, but the thing you said earlier also is the God complex. Um, doctors have big egos. If you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. We've seen it. They're very, uh, some, some doctors can be very arrogant. You ask me if I have a God complex? I am God. So, you know, my take on the God complex is that people that have a God complex are more likely to think that they can take drugs without, you know, getting caught, without any repercussions. But let's say you're a patient and you have a surgery any, any morning time um, and the doctor just seems wired. Uh, he doesn't seem right to you. What do you do? Can you do anything? What do you do? Ronnie, what do you do? I, I've never been in that type of situation. But, you know, if it's just a routine kind of like checkup, um, you know, I would just be like, hey, doc, how are you today? How you feeling? Right. But if this guy's about to like prep me for surgery, I, you know, I'm pulling the fire alarm or something. You know what I mean, this, this shit ain't happening. Well, num- number one, and I think this is really solid advice. If that situation happened mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's extreme and it's not the, the practice pointers I'm going to give for patients, but if your gut, if every fiber in your own body is telling you that something's wrong, you do not let somebody operate on you. And I'm not giving medical advice. I'm giving common sense advice. This isn't legal advice. This is common sense. You have to trust your instincts to a certain extent, right? Well, yeah. And let me, let me let's start running through some of the things that patients can actually do. And they cross over a little bit, but here are some of the basics of what patients really need to do that most of our clients don't do. And, and the first one is simple to ask questions. You know, we're so trusting of doctors that the dialogue is them telling us and very few patients feel emboldened enough or intellectual enough or whatever the reason is to ask questions about what's being done, what's wrong with them, their medical condition. Um, you know, do you guys think patients ask enough questions? What have you seen, Bill? Patients often don't ask enough questions. They they don't want to be seen as a problem patient, right? Everyone's kind of afraid that you're going to get the medical version of, you know, someone working at the restaurant who spits on your cheeseburger. And so they, they don't want to be a problem patient for this doctor. Um, and, and tone matters. You don't need to be questioning in a way that indicates you don't think the doctor knows what the doctor's doing, but ask her questions, right? Figure that out. Um, ask about what the procedure is. I'll, I'll tell you this. I've had a number of times where we've, we've had clients who very specifically insisted to the doctor, hey, look, I do not want a resident touching me, right? Because I, I want the doctor to perform the procedure. The resident can watch and assist, but I don't want the resident doing any cutting. And that's fine. I, I, don't, know, I don't know statistically how more or less likely the care is to be bad based upon the resident or the, or the, the actual physician doing the care. I'll tell you what I've never heard someone tell me they ask and everyone should, which is ask the doctor when they're scheduling you, whether it's a doctor or whether it's the the staff at the place, if it's an outpatient surgery center, no one ever asks about the schedule. Okay. You have me scheduled for surgery at eight 30. Is that the first surgery of the day? Is it the fifth surgery of the day? How long 
before that surgery is this doctor in another surgery how long after what's the schedule look like you know I, and i don't know that the answer is always the same yeah i mean i don't i don't think most patients will ask those questions but the questions you should ask are doctor what's your schedule that what's your surgery schedule that day um doctor who will be assisting you that day is there any other doctors that are going to be operating on me um if there are what are the difficult uh, portions of the procedure. Will you be doing those or will the other doctor being those? And I think it's always a good idea. And people aren't afraid to do it because they want, like you said, spitting on the hamburger is a great analogy because they want the doctor not to be like, well, fuck this person. I don't want to, oh yeah, okay. Or they don't want to alter the, the physician's mindset in any way. But I think on a morning of surgery, you need to look at the doctor. You need to examine the doctor and say, doctor, how are you feeling today? Are you, are you up for this? Are you ready for this? Because you're really a team in it, don't you think, Ronnie? Without a doubt. And also recognize that doctors are people. They're human. And just like if you were out at uh, happy hour and your, your uh, compadre was uh, your, your ride and he's, and he's looking like he's a little bit inebriated, right? You're not going to take a ride with that guy, Okay. Same with your doctor, right? If he's yeah. coming in like with the snipples and, and whatnot, or he's, his eyes are all glassy red, take a pause. You know what I mean? You don't yeah. have to get surgery, right? You really don't, unless well, it's an I mean, emergency. You may. Right, you, right. You may. I mean, that's different. Yeah. So we're not talking about emergency yeah. surgery. You so can reschedule, about- right? Exactly. Correct. Reschedule. Um, and so- I would probably then go get a second opinion <laughs> elsewhere well, well, if, if that's, that's your concern. That's why you're the godfather. See? That's why they call him the Godfather. Um, number one is ask questions. And number two is get a second opinion. You have time between the surgery being scheduled, what you need, um, and getting a second opinion. I'm not saying getting a second. I don't give medical advice. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not Dr. Van Nostrand. How long have you been doing this, Dr. Van Nostrand? Oh, a long, long time. Um, but... A lot of the times, especially with severe diagnosis, we get second opinions on on cars, Ronnie, right? I mean, did you ever get a second opinion on whether or not you need a new alternator or, or, what, it, or what it is? People don't often get second opinions on diagnosis, as though this doctor, who may or may not be snorting cocaine, which is a possibility, is telling you that the diagnosis is correct. I mean, it sounds like abject fear mongering, but uh, it's also accurate. Um, I, I don't suggest that our listeners start going into every meeting with every doctor the rest of their lives trying to ascertain, hey, is this doctor on cocaine today? Um, but using the same common sense measures you would use to protect yourself in other situations should also be used when it comes to doctors, right? Don't, don't be so deferential to the doctors and so trusting of the doctors that you just kind of write them a blank check and shut off your judgment. I, I do want to do a little fear mongering bill because I think we're limiting in this conversation, the cocaine and sniffles, but the, these medical professionals have access to the best designer drugs on the planet. Okay. And I know a lot of them that experiment with a lot of these designer drugs. So yes, if you see someone that is maybe slurring or looks like they're not quite there, I I would take a pause, literally take a pause. Yeah. Thank you, Ronnie. When I keep saying cocaine or cocaine, as they did in Scarface or Mota, as they did in the movie blow, Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, I'm really using it because it's a catchphrase for the entire substance abuse problem, so to speak. Do I really think it's cocaine? I don't know. I Is cocaine still popular? I guess among people who do cocaine, it is. I don't. It seems like there's more of a prescription based drug addiction in America. The right opioids. The opioids. opioids. Mm-hmm. Right. The Oxycontin and all of that shit. So I literally I want to interject here. I literally watched a doctor in my neighborhood on my block ruin his, his life <clears throat> because he was addicted to opioids. He was getting them from his hospital and, and it got to the point where he broke into our local pharmacy and was arrested. Right. This happens to people. And sometimes it is it happens to doctors. So ask questions, seek a second opinion. The third best advice for patient safety is to review and know your medical records. It's something that very few patients do. And what that means is you can be told one thing in your visit. It's another to read what is going on with you. And I would even say, not from a legal or medical perspective, but I would say, use the internet, read about what they're saying, what the diagnoses are, what the symptoms are, what the risks are. You can read what the risk of surgery, and then you can use that information, whether it's true or not, to ask questions to the doctor, right? So they even say for, there's a patient bill of rights out there on various websites, and they even say that um, you should download the app on your phone so you have access to your records and are able to ask questions about the records. Do you think either of you guys think that patients actually review their medical records when treating? I'm not even sure they really meaningfully can, by which I mean all of these places have, well, not all of them, but a lot of medical providers now, they give you kind of online portal access to your quote unquote medical records. As someone who practices in medical malpractice, as someone who reviews medical records, who requests them formally and reviews them, there are many things in the medical records that we formally request that simply are not put up in those portals. Um, be, be conscientious and knowledgeable about your own care and review what is there. But remember too, especially if something goes wrong or you're curious about what happened in there, everything that is in your chart is not in your web portal. Yeah, let me follow up on that, Bill. So, Ronnie, this is. Pretty, I want to see if you know this. You're, you know, you're everyday Ron. You're the Godfather. Do you, Aren't you? Isn't that contradictory in nature? An everyday guy and the Godfather. Um. Okay. Well, are you on oxycodone? Move on. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, coffee this morning. Here's here's the question I have for you. Um, UPMC, Allegheny Health Network. They give you an app the my chart app, which allows you to look on you and, and they act like they're involving you in your medical care. Do you, as a patient, a human being everyday Ron, do you think that that app would give you access to some of your medical records or all of your medical records? That is an interesting question. I have, I'm experiencing this right now. So I could speak, uh, for, you know, from very recent experience, uh, someone in my life right now is going through um, some issues, medical issues, and we're seeing different doctors and we're being sent to specialists for different care, scans and things of that nature. And no, none of this is pulled together. So when we go to the primary, you know, and we're trying and in these doctors are all in the same network and we still can't get the complete medical file pulled together. And, and so you don't know what you don't know as a patient. Uh, so you don't know the questions to ask when you're in front of 
different doctors. So we're saying like, well, why can't we uh, talk about this? Well, you know, that happened over in this other care center. They have that file. It, it's a difficult thing. It's, it's, it's a really difficult uh, thing to navigate when you're not in the know. Let me add this. I think, and, and I'm, I'm guessing this is a place you were going to go, um, but I want to go there now, Noah, is one of the most important things you can do, and this is especially true if you're talking about getting a surgery or, or being in a situation where you're going to be not fully in possession of your capacities, or even if you're you know, fully conscious, not going to have the energy to really kind of fight, is to have someone there with you at the hospital, uh, at the surgery center, wherever you are, someone there to be your advocate, to look at what drugs are coming in and take notes of what drugs are being given to you or what the doctors are saying to you or what pain you're describing to the doctors. Because, you know, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, we've had calls or consultations from clients and it's especially true all the time we get this where someone has a nurse in the family, right? So, you know, one of my six children is a nurse. That's, that child is the one who was at the hospital with me most of the time. And that nurse caught some mistake that was going to happen or went and followed up and asked the right question to make sure something didn't go wrong. And I'm left saying, you know, your, your mom or dad is really lucky to have you because if you weren't there to catch that mistake, no one would have, and it might've killed them. It's um, scary. It's scary. It, how many it, times we've seen that it's, it has saved many, many lives. And what we don't know is how many lives have been lost because nobody's there and you can only do what you can do, right? As far as the people in your life and their schedule. Uh, but factor that in when you're scheduling your surgeries and your time in the hospital, schedule it at a time when family or friends or someone can be there, do as much as you can on your end as a patient to make sure that someone can be there. Because when you're recovering from a surgery, you're sleeping a bunch, you're feeling weak, you're just not in a position to go bang on the nurse's stand for, for the care you need. Was that wrong? Should I not have done that? Yeah. I mean, look, number one is ask questions, seek a second opinion, know your medical records in and out, even if you have to request the hard copies. But number four, Bill, and you hit the nail on the head, is, is you bring it, bring a qualified advocate because looking at your own condition subjectively versus somebody else being able to hear what's going on objectively is a huge advantage for the patient. Ronnie, you agree? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to try to be very concise here. Uh, one of my children was diagnosed with a cancer and uh, he was, he, he went through chemotherapy treatment for six months in a hospital. The things that we saw and avoided <laughs> Throughout that treatment, and I want to say he's a hundred percent, by the way, healthy today. And it was nothing short of a miracle the me the medical um, care that he was given. And I'm a hundred percent happy. However, there was there was so much action and so many different groups coming in and out of his room, and there there were pretty bad mistakes made. Uh, nothing life-threatening, but, you know, medicines given at the wrong time, medicines, you know, withheld um, and, and things of that nature. You And, and I want to also give another example. There was one point, like he, my son was so doped up on um, not just the chemo, but also the uh, pain meds that there were times where there's six doctors literally standing at the foot of his bed and he is nodding off in front of them saying, I apologize. I apologize. Like he can't even understand what they're saying to him. He is just out. 
And luckily, my ex-wife and I were standing there. We, you know, communicated. We wrote stuff down, and we really advocated for his care. And there were mistakes made, generally. I guess a point that I want to try to make, and I'm, I'm regularly left trying to make to people, that they understand in other parts of their life. Good drivers sometimes still make mistakes, right? I can be a good driver, and it doesn't mean that I don't run a stop sign one day because I don't see it. Good doctors make mistakes. It is possible uh, for Ron and for other people to, to say what you just said. I am happy with my medical care. My doctors did great work. And also, there were a bunch of times where mistakes were made or could have been made. Um, if you know, if I'm a professional driver, if I'm if I'm in the car ten hours a day, I can be really good for you know weeks straight. But if I make a mistake and that mistake kills somebody, I should still be held responsible for that. It doesn't make me a bad person, right? It's not a moral referendum on you that you made a mistake as a driver and caused an accident. But the system is in place to ensure compensation to the person injured by that mistake. That's exactly the way that medical malpractice is supposed to work. I am not saying, look, we've had some bad doctors, um, but I'm not saying when I file a lawsuit against the doctor that that doctor is a bad doctor or a bad person or deserves some sort of moral opprobrium for for having done wrong all i'm saying is doc you made a mistake and i mean i'm even saying more bill i'm saying look you may be a caring human being but i'm not convinced you didn't do cocaine last night <laughs> that's true that is what you're saying uh that is not what i'm saying yeah well let's try to bring this home among the three of us here i mean i think the number is shocking when you talk about as high as 400 half a million people a year i mean how in the hell is nobody talking about this across the country? You know how many people died in the Ukraine so far, Ronnie? How many people do you think have died in the Ukraine war? 3,000. You know, estimates are as low as 2,000, as high as 10,000 if they're not counting. But they've, like, you Google it and it's coming up 2,000 right now. We're talking about 500,000 people dying from medical errors and nobody's talking about it. No, I haven't. You know, the last major article that I saw when I researched it was two years ago, you know, a CNBC article or something like that. So it's just, it's just insane to me. And so I, hopefully we help some people learn how to protect themselves. And, and that's where I want to ask you guys your final opinions as well. It's hard to ask questions, but you've got to ask questions, patient advocates, um, second opinions. Um, what else? Anything else you guys think you can help patients out there who are trying to avoid the pitfalls of maybe somebody not performing surgery at their best? Uh, I would say this. Most doctor's appointments that I experience are, are kind of rushed. Or they are rushed, not kind of. You know, they, they, they need to see a lot of patients. They're, they're overwhelmed. They have too much on their plate. I always say to the doctor, like, listen, I'm not a medical expert. I might be, you know, I, I have different skill set than you. Just can you speak as plainly as a layman to me, tell me what's happening and then we can move on and you can get about your day. Um, there's no reason for you to feel rushed and not know what your treatment is or is going to be. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess jumping off that, right. It, we've all had the frustrating experience of sitting in the waiting room for 45 minutes waiting to get called in because everyone's so overbooked and busy. If you have had to wait and be patient when it's your time to talk to the doctors and the medical professionals, don't be all worried about the delicate genius. Um, 
that time is your time. And it's the only chance you're going to get to make sure you understand what's happening to you and who is going to be operating on you, you know, an extra three or four minutes uh, to, to reach that level of comfort. It's not your job to solve uh, their scheduling problems. It's your job to make sure that you have taken what measures you can to protect yourself. Hopefully we've helped some patients out there today. And I'll tell you what, Bill, on a, on a separate episode, we will examine, do I have a medical malpractice case? The three basics of understanding whether or not you have a malpractice case. So I'll be interested <laughs> to talk about that. And I'll be interested to have the Godfather back too, because I love his insight. If you think that you have been affected by medical malpractice. You think that what you're dealing with or a loved one is dealing with is the result of not necessarily a doctor on drugs, but maybe that, but some sort of medical error. Please don't wait for our next episode to drop to figure out what to do. Go to our website, go to Flaherty Fardo's website at pghfirm.com. Call us, email us, get help now. Um, you know, don't, don't wait for the intricacies of podcast scheduling to land there. So. Yep. Thank you, Bill. And that's why I love you, Bill. You're still leaving your name out of the title. It's Flaherty Fardo Rogel Amick. Bill's, Bill is a partner. Yale Bill is a partner, and um, but an unselfish one at that. But absolutely. Gentlemen, any final thoughts? So, and again, no, you kind of, you wrapped up and, and I just like, as I'm thinking through it, you know, I, I love to take a significant other with me when, when I'm in the doctor's office. I really do because they hear different things. I mean, this, again, from recent experience, my significant other and I heard completely different things at a recent visit. And we, you know, we came home and we're questioning each other like, wait a minute, I thought he said this. And I'm like, no, I heard the exact opposite, that it wasn't there, you know, that type of thing. And also keep in mind, you're paying right? This is your time. <laughs> He's working for you during that 15 minutes to an hour, right? Thanks again. And always to the Godfather, our, our first repeat guest. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Actually, Nicole may have been on two episodes. I don't remember. Um, anyway, that should about do it for this episode of I Strenuously Object. Hopefully you learned something or had a few laughs or are willing to now speculate recklessly about the, uh, the substance abuse problems of the medical professionals in your life. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends or your enemies about our podcast. It's the only way we can grow. If you have any questions for our mailing it in mailbag segment or other feedback for the podcast, email the podcast directly at iobject at pghfirm.com. And until next time, some parting advice. You gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. Noah, are we adjourned? We are adjourned. We want to hear from you, our listeners. You can email us your questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes at iobject at pghfirm.com. Or DM us on Instagram and Facebook. Follow us at Flaherty Fardo on Instagram or Flaherty Fardo Rogel and Amick on Facebook.